I'm very happy to be here today. My name is uh, Dr. Philip Troik. I am uh, with the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago, and I'm the executive director of the Pritzker Institute of Biomedical Science and Engineering. And I'm here to tell you today about a groundbreaking project uh, that is a clinical trial going on for something that's called the intracortical visual prosthesis. Um, out of respect for uh, the participants here who um, who may be unsighted or have blindness, um, <clears throat> I'm going to be uh, describing this project um, orally uh, without the need to rely upon visual aids, <clears throat> but I will be showing some visual aids and slides in case there are those that may have family members or others that they would like to show them to, or in case there are people here who <clears throat> who uh, are sighted. So <clears throat> let me get right into it. And um, this is a project <clears throat> that is called the intracortical visual prosthesis. And I'm going to explain in detail what that really is about. <clears throat> and I will be giving an overview of the project and I will be giving some, uh, perhaps at this point, not so early clinical trial uh, results that, that we have. So what is the intracortical visual prosthesis? Well, this is a device that's being tested in an FDA-approved clinical trial <clears throat> that is funded by the National Institutes of Health. <clears throat> and basically, it is like a miniature cell phone network that's put into the brain <clears throat> in the visual area of the brain. So you know that the visual area of the brain, the primary visual area, is directly <clears throat> in the back of the head, right as it curves down towards the neck on each side. There's two lobes of the brain there, which is called the uh, occipital lobe. <clears throat> And the intracortical visual prosthesis system is a collection of miniature modules that are very tiny. Uh, in fact, they are about the size of the little bump that's on an AA battery. So they are five millimeters in diameter, and they're less than a millimeter thick, and they have tiny, tiny little protruding electrodes that come from them and it looks like a little miniature hairbrush. And these little modules, then these little disc-like modules, can be inserted surgically into the occipital area. And they are capable of wireless communication from a external transmitter in order to put a tiny electrical currents into the visual area of the brain for the purpose of trying to create artificial vision for people without blindness. Now, this project began officially in 2000, so we've been at it for about 23 years, but it was an outgrowth of a much earlier project that dates all the way back to the 1970s. <clears throat> in 1996, the National Institutes did a experimental trial where they implanted tiny little electrodes that I will tell you more about into a volunteer's brain. 
and with the hopes of testing the feasibility of this. In 2000, my group actually took over this project and um, formed what we call the ICVP project, and it has been supported in the past 23 years by the NIH, by the U.S. Army, by the Brain Research Foundation, by um, my institution, the Illinois Institute of Technology, University of Chicago, and private donors. In 2017, we received funding from the Brain Initiative from the NIH to transition this to a clinical trial. In 2019, the FDA approved our trial for five participants, and in 2022, the first blind participant was implanted. So it's important to think a little bit about how vision normally works. Vision enters the eyes, the retina converts light into neural signals, the optic nerve carries those neural signals to the brain, the brain decodes those neural signals, and then the brain creates a perception of the image that is fallen on the retina with light by using a very complex neural machine that's, that's our brain. And about one half of the human brain is involved in some way with some form of vision perception and processing. The basic idea of the intracortical visual prosthesis is that by placing these little tiny subminiature modules into the visual area of the brain that the connects to the eye through the optic nerve, that is the occipital lobe that's on each side of the head in the back, that we can then bypass the eye and the optic nerve and we can inject vision information from a camera in the form of electrical stimulation that goes directly into the brain. So the idea is that individuals who may not have functioning eyes or optic nerve connections could then receive a form of artificial vision by directly inserting that artificial information directly into the brain, bypassing the eyes and the optic nerves. <clears throat> now, I should stress here that the ICVP system is not meant to restore natural biological vision. It's not capable of restoring the ability to see one's loved, lo a loved one's face. It's not meant to replace a cane or a guide dog. It's not really meant for reading or watching television. But it can have the capability to produce very crude artificial vision. So those of you who may remember vision before uh, you, the onset of blindness, think about looking at the world through the holes of a kitchen colander that's used to strain noodles that you hold up in front of you and kind of move it around. That's our best analogy of what this artificial vision might be like. And I will be describing more in a little bit about that artificial vision and, and what the performance expectations can be. So at this point, I'd like to pause for just a moment and I'd like to ask, are there any questions that one has so far about what I'm saying? So I understand, you know, your all your uh, things about how 
basic this is or how unlike natural vision, but it seems as though you might say that this is a, a potentially a visual analog to a, a cochlear implant, right? That is a very good way of putting it. <clears throat> In fact, it's exactly that. The, um, the auditory system is a little bit simpler than the vision system. <clears throat> and so you might imagine that it's more of a challenge to do this, but you are exactly correct, Roger, that this is an analog of the cochlear implant <clears throat> whereby stimulating the portions of the, of the vision system that are still remaining functional, that is the portion that starts at the brain, that then we can, by using a camera rather than a microphone, which is used on the cochlear implant, and by injecting tiny electric currents, we can then create inputs that then the brain can interpret as vision. That's ex a very good analogy. Do you have any idea as to what might happen if you uh, put this equipment on someone who's never had vision? Um, we don't know the answer to that question, uh, but we do know that, that we do know that, that, that the brain. Yeah, we do know that the brain of individuals who have never had vision develops in a different way than the brain of people who do have vision. So at the present time, for other things, right? Maybe. Possibly at the present yeah. time, our study is restricted to people who have had vision. Understand. Okay, <clears throat> Darian. Hello, I've been looking forward to this presentation. Um, and is it appropriate to, what I want to ask is, I believe I have cortical vision impairment. I was born with vision, and I had a cardiac arrest at age two that caused anoxia and brain damage, and I still have vision. Um, pretty usable vision, but I can't interpret fine details, depth perception, facial expressions, which are fine details. Um, is there a possibility that um, because of how it happened and the fact that I have vision that I could learn to see this way? Yes, so this these are very this is a very good question, Daria, and I can't comment on individual conditions that some of you may have, but I can tell you that for our trial, um, that it is a requirement that the participants must have had correctable vision up to the age of ten. Oh, and and that what this the phenomena you describe, where you may be able to not interpret vision information. This is very common. And there's an excellent book written by Mike Mays, which is called Crashing Through, which is about an individual who had childhood cataracts that later then were, were removed with uh, corneal transplants. And he describes very well his struggle in trying to interpret vision once he had it uh, given to him, even though he didn't have it at an early age. Are there other questions? Okay, I'd like to, to go on and talk a little more now about what this system is and uh, what, the, uh, what the physical uh, components of it are. <clears throat> so, 
So the hardware of this system, the devices get that get implanted into the brain, they are these tiny little discs that I talked about that contain electronics and contain a receiving antenna and connect to a 16 subminiature electrodes <clears throat> that are so tiny that on the tip of your hair, you could put at least 10 or 20 of these electrodes. So they are extremely small. They project out of this little disc by about 10 thicknesses of a piece of paper, less than a millimeter. They're very, very tiny. And each electrode that comes out has what you might think of as its own telephone number. And the module has its own area code. And so we can call up any module and any electrode using its identification, and we can tell it how much current to put into the brain. The idea for the ICVP system is that there will be a collection of those little modules that are implanted into the brain. And these modules do not contain a battery. They get their power and they're communicated with through a disc-like antenna that is placed over the head, over the area where the devices are implanted. And they are powered and communicated with using a magnetic field. This is kind of like the same thing that you have for wirelessly charging your, your cell phone, where you simply place it on a pad and you can um, wirelessly charge it. In our case, we provide power and we can communicate. The external device, which is then <clears throat> placed on the scalp, is connected to an electronic box, which then receives input from a camera. And the camera then sends image information that is processed and turned into commands for these miniature electrodes that are inside of the brain and are then told to put tiny currents. And where the electrodes are on the brain then determines where in the visual field the, the user would perceive a spot of light. It's not a real spot of light because it doesn't come in through the retina, but when you stimulate the brain in that area, the brain thinks there's a spot of light there, and those little spots of lights are called phosphenes. These little modules are called wireless floating microelectrode arrays. They contain a custom electronic chip. They contain 16 miniature stimulating electrodes, plus an electronic chip and a little antenna for powering and communication. They are very advanced, and the electrodes are so small that if you could put them next to a human hair, you could put 10 or 20 of them on the tip of the human hair. The electrodes are engineered in a, a very precise way, and each one of them is custom manufactured, and the devices are assembled in our laboratory at the university. Now, the first implant that was done in a volunteer was done on uh, Valentine's Day in 2022, February 14th. 
This was done at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, who is one of our team participants. 25 of these little modules were implanted onto the surface of the brain, comprising 400 electrodes because there's 16 electrodes per module. This was done on the right side of the brain, and it was done using a little rapid insertion method that kind of pops them into the brain very quickly. The whole surgery took four hours, and when we were implanting the devices, we were doing about one device per minute. The volunteer who had these implanted has no light perception, no natural light perception in either eye. There were no post-surgical complications, and recovery took uh, about one month in which then we started to test what we could do with these little modules and how we could communicate artificial vision information to the brain. In the past 20 months, we have now established that all 25 of the devices are functioning flawlessly. The electrodes have been characterized. They have very high stability. They have good electrical performance. And when we squirt tiny little currents into the brain and the person reports to us the percepts that they, re that they, uh, that they, they, they see or they perceive, these little things called phosphenes, they look like little dots that are in the front of, of the, the, uh, the visual field. The threshold for that, the amount of current we have to put in to, to perceive a little dot is, shows very high stability. So from a hardware standpoint, all of the technology is working exactly as we intended it. The person has 25 of these devices for 400 electrodes. And now we've gone on to the very difficult task of understanding what can we do with them. We've performed what's called mapping, which means that when we stimulate one of them, we ask the participant to point in the front of them and say, where do you, where do you see a dot? And we do that for each of these. And then we create a map of where they are, and then we know how to associate them with an input from a camera. So over the past 20 months, we have been testing the system. We've been verifying the hardware stability of the implanted devices, and we've been doing visual task training and testing. So the surgery to do this involves removing a section of the skull which is about the size of the bottom of a soft drink can, putting in the devices, replacing the section of the skull, and closing the scalp. This is a procedure that neurosurgeons do every day. The risk of this procedure is relatively low. And in our case, there was no visible uh, bleeding from putting the devices in. The recovery was excellent. And of course, after 20 months, the person doesn't even know they have the devices implanted. In fact, after a month or two, the, the main discomfort was the scalp healing up. So we plan to put in about 200 electrodes, but we were able to put in 400. This was at the discretion of the surgeon who decided 
how many of the little modules would be safe to put into the brain. At this point, I'd like to pause and ask if there's any questions. So for a person who does this study, I am assuming that the only way it can be done is if that person remains in your training facility. How far away from your camera setup must that person be maximum to still be able to, uh, for all intents and purposes, see those images? Yes, so the person wears what's called a um, a telemetry controller, and it is a, a box in which now we're in the process of miniaturizing, but the person typically sits in a chair in, in the testing lab, <clears throat> and this little puck, which is about the size of a donut is uh, that you might eat. It's about that size. It's placed on the head with a little headband. And there are various visual tasks that the person can do. And I will be describing those. They're also able to mobilize at this point outside of the laboratory in which we have moved the equipment behind on a cart. In December, at the very beginning of December, we will actually be using for the first time a fully mobile system that the person can wear completely on their belt in which they won't have any connection through any wires to any computer that's in a room. And I will be describing a little more in a little bit exactly about what that testing is like. Okay, Julie. Hi there. Excuse me. I have a question back on the visual acuity issue I should have asked before. Um, what about people who are just visually impaired and didn't have full vision? Are they candidates for this? So the inclusion criteria for our study is that the person should have no or bare light perception in both eyes. What that basically means is um, if you can localize a light that's turned on in the room, you have mm -hmm. too much vision. Gotcha. If you okay. know that the light is on in the room, but you can't localize it, mm -hmm. then you could possibly be a candidate. My if question, you, oh, forgive ahead. me. My question is previous to this, though, previous to even being a candidate, what if I, I was visually impaired, not, not fully sighted? Would I be a candidate for this? Uh, our I'm participants totally blind now. Our yeah. participants must have had correctable vision up to the age of 10. However, after that, people go through various stages of vision loss. Mm -hmm. So what matters is, assuming that the person had the correctable vision up to the age of 10, mm -hmm. however they may have lost their vision, at the present time, if they have hand motion or better, that is, mm -hmm. you can see the hand moving in front of your face. Mm -hmm. That's too much residual vision. Right. If but they have, if they don't have hand motion, mm -hmm. they could then be considered as candidates for the study. Would that correctable vision have to have been full vision? Can it be a partial vision up till ten? Uh, I think in individual cases, it depends upon the particular case, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but it doesn't mean that you had 20-20 vision. Up there to we go. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Great. Thank you. Fascinating. Thank Are there you. other questions? 
where can we read the criteria for inclusion? And um, I will be giving all that information later. Thank you. Beth, do you have a question? Yes, I do. Does would this help people with um, damage to your optic nerve? <clears throat> yes, in particular, it doesn't require intact retinas or optic nerves because we are bypassing the eyes and the optic nerve and going directly to the brain. Oh, okay, cool. I'm going to continue uh, describing this system so that um, those of you on the call now can understand more about it. So I mentioned a moment ago that um, once the implantation is done, then we have to find out where in the vision field we can produce these spots of light that we call phosphenes, these vision perceptions, when we stimulate each electrode. <clears throat> Every person's brain is different. And so when we implant these, we don't know exactly where these artificial spots of light will appear. So it's trial and error. We stimulate an electrode. We call it up in our little cell phone network in the brain. And we say, turn on. And then we ask the person, where do you perceive something? Point to it. And we have different techniques that we use to create what we call a map. And the map is a map between the electrodes and their their telephone numbers and where in the vision field is this collection of of spots that we call phosphenes and then how might we use those phosphenes to combine them together to create the perception of image information in the brain so to date over the past 20 months we have mapped vision field locations for 20 out of the 25 devices that we've implanted. Not all the devices end up being implanted in an area in which it creates this type of vision perception. So we have to go through them one by one, electrode by electrode, and we have to find out where do the spots appear. But our participant has described to us not only their size, but their shape, their color, and sometimes their movements and textures. So they, they, they've been described as sometimes tiny spots. They've been described sometimes as wavy lines. They've been described sometimes as shapes, a little diamond that forms in the vision field. And we get what's called a little catalog of these, and then we try to figure out how to use them. So some of you may remember a light bright toy which was a toy in which you had a light that came from a little plastic tray and you put in colored pegs in there. And when you did that, you could put the colored pegs in a pattern that if one looked at it, you could recognize it as a shape. Or sometimes even you might recognize it as a face as you looked at it. Of course, this is not like natural biological vision, but it is the start of what one day could be standard of care. To do this mapping, we it's a difficult task. So from the time we implanted in February of 2022 until August, we had about 
four or five little regions where we were thought that the person would be able to or was able to perceive. By March of 2023, we had a whole collection of these using up to 120 of the different electrodes. And some of the phosphenes that are produced are bright and some are dark. And we use these in different ways to try to communicate this artificial vision to the person. Now, it's hard work to do this, and it takes a lot of dedication. And I will stress that this is not meant to restore biological vision. The people who participate in this are helping us to understand for the first time how one could artificially stimulate the vision area of the brain to create this artificial vision as a replacement for biological vision. We like to think of our study participants not as study subjects, as sometimes they're called, but really as volunteers who are helping us to go on a journey and to understand what are the possibilities for this interface that we've been able to create with the brain. A good analogy for this might be the astronauts who, who were in the space program. At some point, we had to have a person go to a place that no one had been and describe what they experienced and what they, they see. And that is how we view our participants as pioneers as a type of astronaut going to a place that no one has been to advance this emerging field of vision prosthesis to help us understand exactly how one might be able to use an interface like this to create artificial vision and how we can change it and sophisticate it so that for those who come in the future, they may benefit. Now I have to point out that on each side of your head, in the region that we're trying to stimulate, you have about 350 million cortical neurons. We've implanted 400 electrodes on one side. In your eye, you have about 125 million photoreceptors. We've implanted 400 electrodes into the occipital lobe. So you can certainly appreciate that at the stage that this is at, this artificial vision would be very crude compared to natural vision. It's not meant to restore biological vision, but it is to explore how artificial vision might be useful as a unique type of sensory aid to do things like determine where large objects are in the environment, determine the location of people in the room, the location of high contrast walkways, the location of a door frame, find objects on a table, determining if it's light out or dark out, where lights are in the room, perhaps crosswalk lines, maybe large moving objects such as cars. 
we like to think that starting with what we'd like to uh, have as biological vision, that this artificial vision would be like trying to provide someone who's totally blind with artificial vision and make them legally blind. So I'd like to ask at this point if there are any questions. Doctor. In my classes, I always say that if there are no questions, it either means that I've been so exquisitely clear that no one has any questions or everyone's completely <laughs> bored. Jeanette. <laughs> Definitely not bored. Uh, my question is, once these electrodes are implanted, do you have a sense of the life expectancy for them to last in any given subject? That's a very good question. So before we got the FDA approval to implant the devices, we did a battery of tests that were in the laboratory and in some non-human testing. And as far as we know, there are no known failure mechanisms of the tiny WFMA modules and the electrodes. That doesn't mean that there can't be failures of the modules. This is part of what this study is showing us. It's a safety study and it's a feasibility study for functionality. As far as we know, there are no failure mechanisms. Some could emerge. But from the standpoint of, of implantation, they are so tiny and so benign compared to other things that are surgically implanted that the recommendation of our medical team and our surgeon is that the devices would remain permanently implanted. However, if our study participants, for whatever reason, decide that they want to have the devices explanted, even against the recommendation of the surgeon, the study does provide for that. You have anything else wrong with your brain? It wouldn't trigger anything like that, you know, like seizures or anything like that? Like if you have seizure activity, that's it wouldn't an trigger That's any an of extremely good question, Beth. <clears throat> and so whenever one stimulates the brain electrically, there is always mm -hmm. a, a risk of seizure. Our particular study, we monitor this very carefully. We have scalp electrodes that we use to look at the electroencephalograph signals. We are looking for the even the hint that there could be activity related to seizure. And part of the, the purpose of this study is to determine how to stimulate the brain without invoking seizure. So it's a very good question. But it is important to recognize that it is a risk of the study. However, to date, in our current participant, over, over 20 months of testing, we had one episode in which the person experienced what's called a visual type seizure, where they saw like a visual aura that kind of got larger and then subsided. Since that time, we've determined what patterns cause that and now we can avoid those patterns okay i'm going to then continue and more 
thoughts of questions may emerge. So the question then remains is, what type of things can this could a person do with this practically, even though it's not the purpose of the study to restore vision, which we're not doing. It's not the purpose of the study in order to create an artificial vision that would be anywhere near biological vision. It is the purpose of the study to determine how we could use such an interface in order to create artificial vision, and more importantly, what could that artificial vision, even in its crude form, provide? So remember <clears throat> that when we stimulate these electrodes, we get a variety of visual features that our participant sees or perceives as dots, light and dark, sometimes lines, sometimes shapes that could be like diamonds or squares, sometimes moving lines, sometimes shimmering shapes, sometimes shapes with colors, sometimes they're described as being iridescent or milky. And this is all because we're stimulating the area of the brain that normally decodes what comes from the eyes and extract these features and uses them to assemble the perception that we call vision. So we have been doing work since uh, December of last year in which we've had a camera that is mounted to glasses with the output of the camera being processed by a computer and then through that computer talking to the devices that are implanted in an effort to see what type of artificial vision we can, we can uh, induce. And our participant is able to do some surprising visual tasks. Now, for those who might be able to see the presentation, I'll describe what I'm showing. We have one test that we do, which is objects on a table to recognize. So we have a black table and we have white objects, four objects, a cup, a bowl, a spoon, and a plate. And those four objects are put randomly in an order in front of the person. And we randomly choose one and we say, okay, pick up the plate or pick up the spoon. And then the person with the camera on their glasses moves their head around, looking, perceiving what is where, how big is it, what is its shape. And the person can, out of the four different objects, the cup, the bowl, the spoon and the plate can get it right about 70% and can reach out and pick up the object. If they don't have the system, and of course, if they just guess, they're correct maybe 20 to 40% of the time. They're just guessing what's there. What does the person perceive? Well, imagine the kitchen colander, like I mentioned to you. They see a bunch of little dots turning on and off, and as they move their head, they're using their memory to construct a sense of what's there. And they can determine, oh, this must be the spoon because it's thin and, and, and short. This must be the cup because it has a shape that's different from the bowl. So they're using their memory of what objects 
did look like when they had vision. And they're able to do reasonably well, which is about 70% of the time they can find and pick up the object. And when they find the object, they know where it is in space so they can reach out and pick it up. Another very interesting thing that our participant did was at their suggestion. They said, you know, I sometimes spill, spill pills out of a bottle. I think I could use this system to find those pills. So we said, try it. So we put on a black background a white pill, and we let the person scan around to look at it, and they found the pill and they reached out and picked it up. This is with some practice, but actually the very first time we did it, the person was able to do it very quickly. Since then, we've done some other things that the person uses the system for. They can locate people in a room. They can say, here's where the people are, and they can point to them. They can locate high contrast walkways. They can locate where the door frame is. They can sometimes determine what type of clothing the person's wearing, if it's light or dark, where their face is relative to their body. They can identify single letters that we project on a screen. So if we put a Z or we put a 2, they can tell the difference. They can also look at things with two different types of cameras we've given them. One is a visible camera that shows visible light. The other is an infrared camera, which is very convenient because it only picks up the heat of people. So as they scan around, they can very quickly determine where the people are. In a collection of chairs, they can determine where the people are sitting in the chairs, so they avoid sitting on top of the chairs. They can determine where uh, things of higher temperature would be. We're doing some testing where they might locate if a stove is turned on, if a burner on a stove is on, using the infrared camera. And we're now starting to look at how mobility enhancement could be used, avoiding obstacles or avoiding people that might be in front of them. And we're doing more of this with a system being that is being tested now outside of the laboratory room itself. So in a moment, I'm going to describe the um, requirements for the study. Dr. Phil Troy, like ICVP Illinois Institute of Technology has stopped screen what share. What the capabilities are that we've been able to demonstrate so far. Okay, then I'm going to assume that uh, I've just been clear and that you're not bored, but I will, I will now go on to tell you uh, some, not all, but some of the requirements to participate in the study and a little bit about what it means. <clears throat> so any participant in the study <clears throat> must have no light perception in both eyes. We talked about that earlier, which means that uh, they may not be able to see a hand waving in front of their face. They may not be able to localize where a lamp would be in a room, but they can know that there is a lamp in the room. They must have had correctable vision up to the age of 10. 
they must have had blindness for at least one year prior to the time that they would enroll in the study. They must have had some type of blindness rehabilitation. And you must be between the ages of 18 and 71 years. Now, as I said before, this is not getting biological vision restored. So the motivation should be research and exploration, not vision restoration. I will say, though, that our participant, our current participant, has found the experience to be very satisfying, often exciting, and is very enthused about helping us to determine what new capabilities could be created using this system. In fact, the participant mentioned to us, it might be easy now for me to see where my dog is laying in the room. Anyone who's interested can contact us at a dedicated email address, <clears throat> which is ICVP at my university name, which is IIT.edu. I'll repeat that. We have a dedicated email address, ICVP at IIT.edu. When you contact us, you will be contacted by our team psychologist, Dr. Lane, who will then ask a series of questions and answer questions that you may have about the study to see whether it fits with your motivation, with your lifestyle, and your vision capabilities. If you think you might be qualified, please contact us and we can explore whether, whether you might be or not. We are recruiting four more participants in the study. The study is approved for five total participants. So far, we have one participant who has been implanted. You can also get a lot more information, including earlier uh, podcast and webinar type presentations that are available at the Chicago Lighthouse for the Blind website. And you can go to chicagolighthouse.org backslash ICVP. That's chicagolighthouse.org, Chicago Lighthouse, all one word, backslash ICVP. And there, there is a wealth of information about the study. You can listen to different presentations that have been given that are similar to this one. And I'd like to tell you that our team is made of eight institutions with up to 50 dedicated volunteers, including the Illinois Institute of Technology, Rush University Medical Center, the Chicago Lighthouse for the Blind, Johns Hopkins University, the University of Texas at Dallas, two companies, which is Microprobes for Life Sciences in Maryland that makes the actual electrodes, Cygenics Incorporated, which makes all the electronics for the study, and the University of Chicago. This study is supported by the National Institutes of Health's Brain Initiative. 
It has been supported by the U.S. Army Tatric Division, the Brain Research Foundation, the Illinois Institute of Technology, University of Chicago, and private donors. So I'm happy at this point now to answer any and all questions about the study or Dr. what Phil the goals Troy, are, ICVP or what to Institute of Technology has stopped screen share of being a participant in the study. Hi there. This is a, this is def definitely fascinating, and I'm glad you're here with us today. Um, I am. I, I heard you um, say that somebody needs needed to have corrected vision until the age of ten. Um, what if the person had, you know, was at the high end of legal blindness, you know, or, or um, you know, visually impaired? Um, so had you know had a fair amount of sight up until their twenties or thirties. Yes. So um, I think that in each case, we make an assessment of what the history was of vision capability, and whether right. we think that meets the criteria for correctable vision. So it's a little bit vague. Every person's particular case is a little different. What we're really right. trying to determine is, did the brain have the opportunity to really develop so that when we're stimulating it, we have some expectation of what will happen when we stimulate it? Okay, and then one more quick question. What about somebody that, let's say somebody was fully sighted or even, you know, high partially sighted for part of their life and then ended up, get, you know, having to have, um, you know, prosthetic eyes. So are people candidates if they have prosthesis? It's not necessary to have physical eyes to be part okay. of the study yeah, because that's what I thought. I just we're bypassing the eyes yeah. and the optic nerve. So we've had, we've had a number of people who have been interested who did have enucleated eyes and uh, had prosthetic eyes. Okay, that's good to know. Thank you so much. This has been really interesting. Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, my question was just answered. I have prosthetic eyes, and it seemed that that would not be a uh, an issue or a disqualification. That's correct. That is absolutely Thank correct. You. Thank you. Uh, two questions, basically. One, why is the age limit 71? And yes. then, go ahead. And then, um, why the light perception rule? So those are very good questions. <clears throat> the light perception rule is because as we worked with the FDA to get approval for this groundbreaking trial, um, we agreed with the FDA that we don't know exactly what will happen when we implant these devices. So if a person had usable residual vision, we wouldn't want to compromise that in any way. So we restricted the uh, participants to people who don't have usable vision in the form of either bare or no light perception. Anything better than that, because it's a brand new study doing a brand new pioneering thing, we were very cautious about not wanting to compromise anyone's residual vision. So that's the purpose of the light perception rule. The purpose of the age rule is because um, above the age of 70, there is a higher risk medically to have the cranial surgery. 
And so, again, being very conservative for the study and putting safety at the highest level, we have the age of 70 as the cutoff, so the person needs to be uh, below the age of 71. Okay. Uh, excellent presentation. That's why you're getting no questions. You cover it quite well. Thank you. Are there other questions that anyone might have? Okay. Oh, oh we have Beth. we have a taker. <laughs> Go ahead, Beth. Sometime you may. Do you think sometime you may be uh, getting participants that that uh, didn't have correctable vision uh, up until the age of ten? Maybe they had correctable <laughs> vision younger than ten. That's an excellent question. Uh, in fact, 10 is a very conservative age. If you think about it, children develop vision that's very good vision well before the age of 10. 10 was set again as an ultra conservative number. But just like the cochlear implants that were mentioned earlier, in the early days of having cochlear implants, um, people who had never had a hearing were restricted from participation. And now cochlear implants are being implanted in children at a very early age before, mm -hmm. uh, before they, they would even have any, any hearing when it's known that they wouldn't. There is a thought that if you implanted someone at a very early age, that in fact the brain might adapt better to the artificial vision than it would um, later on. So you're correct that as we determine safety and as we determine the aspects of functionality in the future, we would expect then that uh, the participant uh, inclusion exclusion criteria would be widened to, in to not be as restrictive. That's correct. Oh man, but by then I might be 70. <laughs> It it could be. So I this is not. this is a first in human study. As I said at the beginning, <clears throat> the beginnings of this study date back to the 1970s. Our particular part of the project started in 2000. I've been at it, you know, 23, 25 years. We've been very patient. Uh, but everything we've done along the way has been to ensure safety and to maximize the likelihood of success. So we are so far pleased that in our first participant, that caution has paid off. And so, but yes, as we go forward, we hope that the knowledge we gain here will help those in the future. And that should be the prime motivation for anyone participating. Okay. Um, hopefully you can answer this question uh, in, quickly. Um, I was just curious, uh, the volunteer that you had that went through the procedure, what is the, what is the length of time that uh, the, the volunteers uh, like stay at your um, clinic and do all this testing? That's a very good question. <clears throat> so this particular person lives out of state. And so in the beginning, in the first two to four months, they traveled to uh, Chicago for testing once a week, and they stayed two days each week. Since then, 
uh, for about the past uh, year to year and some months. They have come uh, twice a month and they stay for two days uh, for each visit. And so that gives you a sense of the type of uh, commitment. Uh, we would prefer to have someone who is local in Chicago, uh, but we realize that depending on where our volunteers might be, we have to be very accommodating in terms of travel and their capability. But it gives you some sense of the time commitment that's involved. Thank you, everyone here for, for listening. Again, if you have questions, you can contact us at icvp at iit.edu. Thank you, everybody who's been here today. And if you know of anyone who you think could be interested or you yourself might qualify, please don't hesitate to contact us.